Well, we continue this morning in our sermon series in Genesis. One of the things that I've always loved about Genesis, and, and it's really true of much of the Old Testament, is that we have before us a real-life case study in, in and through which we observe and learn much about God and much about ourselves. I've gone to great lengths throughout this series to emphasize that we always have to understand Genesis first as the foundation of God's plan to rescue and redeem humanity from sin. And then there is, at, at times, some helpful secondary application of the text to our lives. But I've become convinced that this order is really important. I think most of us naturally read the text wrong. By default, we either read it simply as history, as information passed along, or we read it functionally as a fable. A fable that contains some moral, some ethical, some spiritual lesson that we are supposed to sort of draw and discern and distill from the text. Many of the Sunday school lessons that we learned about Genesis, that uh, we experienced as, as children, were guilty of that second error. The story of Noah was really a story about believing God and not bowing to cultural pressure. The story of Abraham was about following God wherever he said to go. The story of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice was a story about the depth of Abraham's faith, trusting that God would provide. The story of Jacob and Esau was a lesson about telling the truth, about not being deceitful. And we could go on and on. And of course, some of those lessons are good lessons, right? And they are part of what the text is saying, but they aren't the primary purpose, the primary meaning, the primary intent of the text. They aren't the main idea. I had the opportunity in the past a couple of times to chaperone high school students on trips to Washington, D.C. And there's, there's always something a little bit disappointing about taking high school students to a place like Jefferson's Monticello or Gettysburg Battlefield. Now, some of the students were great and really gave themselves to learning and to experiencing our nation's history, but then there are other kids who, for example, leave Monticello, and, and the only thing they can talk about is the ice cream in the gift shop. That's sort of what it's like when we read Genesis and we just walk away with the peripheral moral or ethical lesson. God's desire isn't just that we quickly identify sort of the low-hanging fruit from the story, the easiest possible explanation of how this text interacts with our lives, but, but instead that we give ourselves to the text. As I so often say, that we place ourselves under the text. That we go on the journey that the text takes us on, that we place ourselves under the word, allow it to convict us, to change us, to lead us to Jesus, that we let the scriptures mold us, shape us, lead us to repentance, and, and assure us of what Jesus has done for us. And, and our text today does all of those things. We left off the story last week with Joseph in Egypt, going from the prison to the palace. Remember, he arrives in Egypt as a slave, sold by his brothers, and we sort of ride the roller coaster along with Joseph. We see that he goes from being a slave to being 
the head in charge of Potiphar's house. Potiphar was a prominent official in Egypt. And then he's wrongly accused and sent to prison. And then we, we heard last week about how God elevates him, lifts him from prison all the way to second in command, sitting at Pharaoh's right hand. In our text for this Sunday, which will span chapters 42 through 44, begins actually back in Canaan with Joseph's family. And Jacob tells his sons to go to Egypt to purchase grain because, as we heard last week, there's a famine that has hit the land. Jacob sends all of his sons with the exception of Benjamin, the youngest son. If you remember, Benjamin and Joseph were the two sons of Rachel, Jacob's preferred wife. And Jacob, uh, assuming that Joseph was dead, uh, was not about to lose his last connection to his deceased favored wife. And so he keeps Benjamin at home where Benjamin would be safe. And so we're going to pick up the story today in verse 6 of chapter 42 when the ten brothers arrive in Egypt. Chapter 42, verse 6. This is God's word to us. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Joseph knows who they are, right? He knows that they aren't spies, but they don't recognize him, so he's going to test them. He's going to take them on a journey. Through a series of sort of leading questions, Joseph figures out that his father and his brother Benjamin are both alive and are doing well, and so he demands that his brother Benjamin be brought to him. Now, we know that Joseph wants to see his brother, but he, he arranged this whole thing sort of under the guise of needing to verify their story. And so he sends them back to their homeland, with the exception of Simeon, who was to stay behind, sort of as a guarantee. But before they leave, Joseph has his servants fill their bags with grain, but also to return to their bags the silver that they had brought with them to purchase grain. The presence of this silver creates an interesting conundrum for the brothers as they get down the road and realize what had happened. They knew they didn't take the silver, but they were afraid that the man that they were trading with, who they didn't know was their brother, would assume that they did take the silver and perhaps would hold it against their brother who remained in Egypt. When they get home, Jacob, their father, refuses at first to send Benjamin back with them. But as time goes on and the famine continues to be severe, Judah speaks up and begins to plead with his father. We'll pick up the account in chapter 43, verse 8. It says, Then Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy along with me and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. 
As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. He will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. And they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. As the story continues, Joseph invites the brothers when they arrive to his home for a meal. And keep in mind, they still don't know who he is. He's speaking Egyptian and using an, a, a translator, an interpreter, to throw them off. And so we pick up the account then in verse 26. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were. And then he said, how is your aged father that you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's own son, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. Joseph then reappears and orders the food to be served, and he gives Benjamin a much larger portion than any of the other brothers. And then we arrive at chapter 44, as the scene continues to play out. And we see Joseph give instructions to his steward, to his servant much like before, to fill the men's sacks with grain and with silver. But then there's a special instruction. He orders that his own silver cup be placed in Benjamin's sack. He orchestrates this plan to test his brothers. And, and he sends them on their way, only to have his servants chase after them and discover the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Joseph orders that the brothers, the other brothers can go free, but that Benjamin must stay as a slave. And that's when Judah, once again, speaks up. We'll pick up the story in verse 30 of chapter 44 and read through the end of the chapter. Judah is speaking here. Judah says this, So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant Remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. 
How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Joseph's creatively orchestrated plan has forced his brothers into a difficult situation. They don't necessarily know how to explain what has happened, but they know what it means. Joseph has every right to imprison Benjamin. But Judah steps in and he offers his life in the place of his brother Benjamin. And so with that summary, with that grasp of the text and what takes place in our text for today, let's talk about what it means. What it means for the overall story of Scripture, what it means for us. And as we explore this series of significant events, allow me to share with you three thoughts this morning. The first one is this, that that we recognize the cohesiveness of God's redemptive plan. What does that word cohesive mean? What does it mean if something's cohesive? It means working together, on the same page, unified, moving together in one direction. I think the cohesiveness of God's redemptive plan, of this story, of God's plan to save and redeem his people is evidenced, it's seen in a number of ways as some of the loose ends of the story thus far begin to come together. I'll share two with you this morning briefly. There are more that we could pick out, but I think these are two helpful ones. Uh, The first one is in the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. Look at chapter 42, verse 6. Chapter 42, verse 6, it says this. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And then skip forward to the next chapter, to chapter 43, verse 26. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. And then finally, in chapter 44, verse 14, it says this, Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Now, of course, this should sound familiar to us, right? What was it that happened to result in in Joseph being sold into slavery in the first place? You might say that it was bad parenting that caused all of this, and that would be true. Jacob unashamedly favored Joseph, causing all sorts of jealousy and resentment. But, But the immediate events that led to Joseph being sold into slavery were his series of two dreams in which his brothers would bow down before him. And here in our text today, we have three instances in which they do exactly that. Joseph has been exalted and his brothers are now three times bowing down before him, exactly as his dreams indicated. God had given these dreams to Joseph decades earlier and it has come to pass exactly as God had said. And remember, this isn't all just a series of unfortunate events. From the dreams to Joseph's slavery to the famine that brought his brothers to Egypt, this is all part of the plan. God has a purpose for the Israelites ending up in Egypt, and he went before them. He put all of the pieces in place. He is conducting the symphony. He is the author of the story. 
that we see the cohesiveness of God's redemptive plan in the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. We also see it uh, as we, we get a glimpse, or at least we get a glimpse of it in, in the three days that the brothers spend in jail. In chapter 42, when Joseph, as part of his ruse, is accusing them of being spies, he has the brothers held in custody in jail for three days. Now, I've mentioned previously that the Bible is full of some of this consistent imagery, these motifs, symbolism that is inserted throughout the story, sort of as breadcrumbs to remind us of where we've been and especially of where we're going, that these aren't just a collection of random events, but part of a larger story. And of course, the three days imagery is exactly that. It's a motif. It's consistent imagery that we see throughout the scriptures. I talked about this all the way back in Genesis 22. That was in February, so a while ago. We were looking at the story of God calling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Genesis chapter 22 verse 4 tells us that it was on the third day of the journey that all of the events took place. Or we could fast forward past our point in Genesis into Exodus, to Exodus chapter 19. God has led the people out of slavery in Egypt, and he's going to come down and appear among the people. He's going to descend from heaven, and his presence will be with the people. And so the people consecrate themselves, they purify themselves. And Exodus 19 tells us, on the third day, God descends as a cloud at Mount Sinai. Or we could look at the account of God raising up his people after their Babylonian captivity. Hosea, the prophet Hosea, described it this way in Hosea chapter 6. Listen to these words. Hosea chapter 6 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. And after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. And I'll mention one final example that's familiar to all of us, and that's the story of Jonah. The prophet Jonah runs away from God, is swallowed by the giant fish, and is in the belly of the fish for three days. If we think of the story of God's redemptive plan, his plan to save and redeem the world as a tapestry, as a garment. That third day language is one of the many threads that runs throughout the entire garment. It's consistent. It keeps showing up over and over and over again. And of course, if we follow it, we know where it ends, right? We know where it leads us to the Savior who rose again on the third day, conquering the grave, offering eternal life for all who will believe. And as we think of God's redemptive plan and mission, the resurrection is, of course, the, it's the high point. It's the apex. It's the summit of his plan to, to rescue and redeem the world. It's the singular act in history that defines all of the rest of history. And so we see the cohesiveness of God's redemptive plan. as it, great and helpful And enjoyable as the story of Genesis is, this might be the most significant point that I hope that you walk away from our year in Genesis with. That all that we read in scripture, both Old and New Testament, is part of God's plan, God's mission to rescue and redeem sinners. And and that we are 
saved into that mission, invited into God's mission to live our lives as part of it. That we see the cohesiveness of God's redemptive plan. What, what else do we see in our text for today? Second, we see that God works patiently to awaken us to our guilt, to lead us to repentance. One of the most interesting parts of these three chapters, and the primary reason that I wanted to handle all three of these as one unit is because we see Joseph both show mercy to his brothers, but also test them. Of course, the fact that Joseph didn't have them arrested immediately when they showed up in Egypt is an act of tremendous mercy. After all, these were the men who hated him, who threw him into a cistern, who were going to kill him, but instead sold him into slavery. From a human perspective, according to the standards of our world, Joseph had every right to hate his brothers. And now they show up begging for mercy, begging for grain so that they don't starve to death. It's important to recognize how merciful Joseph is here. But the account isn't simply a story of mercy. It's also a story of testing. Joseph is going to put his brothers to the test. He's going to test the content of their hearts. He's going to test their love for their father, their loyalty to Joseph's only full sibling, Benjamin. He's going to test their character. Are they still heartless, selfish men who are only living for themselves, willing to do away with anyone who steps in their way? Think about the silver that he put back in their sacks. Would they concoct a story when they got home to their father that Simeon had died and so that they could just keep the silver and keep the grain and go on about their lives like nothing happened like they did with Joseph? No. What, what do they do? They insist that Jacob send Benjamin. They take the silver that they owed from the first batch of food and they bring some more silver with them and they head back to Egypt. Or think about chapter 43 when the brothers return to Egypt with Benjamin. They are emaciated. They're invited to Joseph's home to eat. And what does Joseph do? He gives Benjamin five times the amount of food of any of the other brothers. Joseph was testing them, testing to see if they would once again be triggered by the kind of favoritism that was shown to their youngest brother. Maybe they would Harden their hearts like they did before. Not only was their father playing favorites, but now so too was this Egyptian. Would their hatred grow toward Benjamin? And chapter 44 follows up with that testing. Benjamin, who was obviously favored, is now found with the silver cup. The brothers had, had the perfect opportunity to, to wash their hands of this favorite, spoiled youngest brother. To just turn him over to be enslaved in Egypt. Would their father have been devastated? Of course. But they had caused that same devastation before. Dealt with it with Joseph. Why not again? But this time their reaction is different. Joseph tests them and their response is entirely different than it was before. You know, we all experience times of testing in life. Maybe another good word we could use is the word discipline. God tests us. God disciplines us. Now, now, depending on your background, your childhood experience, this might be a little bit difficult for you to, to deal with. I know some of you had maybe a parent who 
disciplined not so much for your growth, but merely for your punishment, for your pain. But that, of course, isn't actually discipline, right? Hebrews 12 talks about this. I'd encourage you to spend some time this week in Hebrews chapter 12. It says that as God's children, we are to endure hardships as discipline. That God treats us as his children. That's good news, right? That God sees us and treats us as his children. And because he loves us, because he sees us as his children, he also disciplines us. His discipline is for our good, to make us holy. And then Hebrews 12 goes on to say that that God's testing, God's discipline in our lives actually produces two things. It produces peace and it produces righteousness. Times of testing, times of discipline, times of struggle are opportunities for us to look inside, to open ourselves to what God is trying to do. But our default reaction, our human reaction, is to look outside. Think about when a child is disciplined. They suddenly become experts in fairness and equity, right? We evaluate our discipline up against everybody else that we see around us, and we're always trying to prove how unfair our situation is. We look outside, we compare, we self-justify. Our inner lawyer creates all kinds of arguments for why we shouldn't be treated the way that we are, how unjust it is, how unfair it is. We can always face hardship and testing and discipline in our lives, knowing that we have a loving Heavenly Father who is using all things for our good, even when it doesn't feel good. God is working patiently, often over years, and like with these brothers in our text, even decades, arranging our circumstances, bringing things into our lives to awaken us to our guilt and our sin, and to lead us to repentance and faith. There's a whole lot of hope to be found in the way that these brothers respond to their testing. Compare the gracious, loving response in our text with that of just a handful of chapters earlier. God is at work changing these brothers, and he's at work changing us, growing us, helping us see our sin, leading us to repentance, leading us to trust in him alone. The story of Joseph testing his brothers puts our own times of of testing into their proper perspective. That God is working to awaken us to our guilt, to bring us to repentance, to lead us to trust in him alone. He is always working for our good. The story has been told, maybe some of you have heard this uh, illustration, the story has been told of a, of a developer getting ready to clear a plot of land. And as he's out, he's out surveying this land, he, he sees a bird beginning to build her nest in a tree that's about to be cleared. And so he watches for a minute, and then he goes over, and he grabs a tool, and he just starts pounding on the tree, being as loud and annoying and persistent and ruthless as he can. And eventually, the bird gets annoyed and abandons her nest-building efforts in that particular tree, and she flies off over the ridge and starts building her nest 
in a tree far away from that rude man. And how often have we been that bird? Completely unaware of the future results of our actions. Completely unaware of what's coming down the road. Unaware that the annoyance, the pain, the suffering, sometimes even the devastation in life is actually God working for our good. It's actually the mercy of God at work. We recognize that the cohesiveness of God's redemptive plan. We, we see that God works patiently to awaken us to our guilt, to lead us to repentance. Finally, I want you to see this, that Jesus is our older brother who offers up his life in our place. I alluded to this several weeks back when we talked about Judah and Tamar. But I want you to see how beautiful this point in the story is. Benjamin has been found with the silver cup in his sack, presumably stolen, and now the all-powerful second-in-command of Egypt has ordered him imprisoned. And he's told the other brothers that they're free to leave. And verse 32 of chapter 44, Judah speaks up. And Judah says this, your servant, speaking of himself, your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. And then verse 33, now then, please let me remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Judah, the older brother of Benjamin, offers himself up as a slave in the place of his younger brother. Judah pleads with Joseph to allow him to be a substitute, to be held accountable for the presumed actions of his younger brother. One thing that's interesting about Judah's speech here before Joseph is that this is the longest recorded monologue in all of Genesis. This message of the willingness of the older brother to offer up his life for the freedom of his younger brother is given plentiful real estate in the book of Genesis, and that's for good reason. Because this is the gospel. The son willing to do whatever it takes to spare his father from the grief of losing his beloved child. And the amazing thing about the redemptive story that I've talked so much about, the incredible thing about the Christian gospel is that I quickly discover that I'm Benjamin, right? Guilty. And yet, I'm also Benjamin, the beloved son. I'm the son so desperately loved by the father. And so are you. Your heavenly Father loves you with an indescribable love. You are Benjamin in the eyes of your heavenly Father. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 talks about the incarnation, about Jesus becoming human. And what it says is that Jesus thinks of us as siblings. Listen to what Hebrews says. It says this, For the one who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified. So, so Jesus and those who are sanctified, which is us, all have one 
Father. Then he goes on to say this. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. The gospel says that you are Benjamin, beloved by your heavenly father, precious, cherished, and your older brother, the true and better Judah, spoke up, stood up, offered his life in your place that all charges against you might be dropped and you'd be set free to live with your loving father. Your heavenly father loves you that much. Jesus loves you that much. And so what does that mean for us? That means we're free to confess our sin, that we can't scare that kind of love away. We're free to be honest about our sin and recognizing that it can't undo what Jesus has done for us. We're free to repent, to live in the hope and and freedom of the gospel. This is the story right here in Genesis 44. This is the gospel. This is the redemptive plan. This is the meaning and the purpose of Genesis is found right here. We see here in chapter 44 where the whole thing's going. And this is why we exist as a church. This is the message that we proclaim. That Jesus is our older brother. That he offered up his life in our place. Let's pray. God, we come to you today amazed at your plan. Amazed at your commitment, your longing to save your people. Thank you for how you put this plan into motion millennia before it reached its its high point and that you continue working out this redemptive plan to this day. We we thank you for how you, you work so patiently, awakening us to our guilt, leading us to repentance, calling us to yourself. Lord, as we reflect on your word today, we do ask that you would lead us to repentance, that you would shine the light of your word in those corners of our heart where we don't want light to be shown. And as you do that, we always recognize, we always remember your great love for us. Thank you that your word works, leading us to repentance, knowing that you are a merciful God. Lord, thank you for the promise from your word that the true and better Judah laid down his life for us. And so, uh, Lord, may you lead us to, to live in that great confidence and that tremendous hope today. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.